Would you turn with me, please, to the book of Acts and to chapter 4. The book of Acts and chapter 4. And as the Lord would help us this evening, we might consider together verse 13. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. When Peter wrote his first epistle and called upon his readers, and that includes you and me, to be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and fear, to be ready to give an answer, he was writing from his own experience. Because he was aware that that was something he had had to do and been enabled to do to give a defense and an answer for the hope that was within him. He'd been called to be a witness for Christ. Now there's a sense in which the apostles were uniquely witnesses of Christ and his resurrection. Chapter 1 at verse 8, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, than to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, that was true, especially of the apostles. It is true, especially of those who are their successors, not in office, we might say as apostles, but in that work of being preachers of the truth. But it's actually true of all God's people that we are called to be witnesses of him. In Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Peter was doing that in the passage before us. For we remember the instant we uh, referred to this morning of the healing of the lame man at the uh, beautiful gate of the temple. And of how that healing gave an opportunity to preach the truth. The crowds gathered round. They were amazed as they saw this man um, uh, walking and leaping and praising God. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. They may not have actually asked, but it was evident. And Peter takes the initiative. And he explains what has happened. That it was not through his own power, but through the power of the risen Christ that this man had been healed. That it was the fulfilment of God's plan and purpose to save a people for himself. That the God of Israel, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, had glorified his son, Jesus the one who they had delivered up to be crucified. He had raised them from the grave. And through his name, and through faith in his name, this man had been healed. 
and he preaches Christ and he calls them effectively to, uh, he calls them to repentance and therefore to faith in Christ, to embrace the Christ that they had rejected. And as we have read, many did so. Can you picture the scene? 5,000 people being brought to faith through one sermon. Wouldn't that be wonderful? What a commotion there must have been in Jerusalem at that time. A wonderful stirring of the Spirit of God. Oh, that we would see something similar in our own day. But of course, the authorities were unhappy and they come and they imprison them. And having given one answer, that is to the people, as they're wondering, what's all this about? Peter then has to, Peter and John then have to give another answer as they're asked to explain themselves. They're brought out of prison. They're set before the council. And they asked, by what power or by what name have ye done this? Verse 7. And Peter gives his response, and we were thinking of something of that response to something. And the council were struck by one thing. Sadly, the wrong thing. They weren't struck by the message. Friend, there's something wrong. If you hear the gospel, and as you hear the preaching of the gospel, you really... Don't get the message, you aren't struck by the message. These people, there was something wrong. It wasn't the message as such that captivated them or challenged them or caused them to respond. What they saw was their boldness. And as they saw their boldness, they were perplexed. But then they remembered they had been with Jesus. Don't be taken up with little irrelevancies surrounding the preaching of the gospel. It's not the speaking of the man. It's not the oratory or the clever phrases. Are the interesting insights into really rather irrelevant things that matter. It's the heart of the matter you should be captivated with. Don't be like the Sadducees and the rulers and elders here. Well, they were struck by the boldness of James and John. They'd like us to consider that this evening that it might be an encouragement to you to give a reason, to give an answer when you're asked for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. That in a day when in many ways we are browbeaten into silence, who are you to tell me what to say? Keep your religion private. Or, what often is the case today, 
that's what you believe, I'm happy for you. And you think, what do I see now? Well, in a day when people try and silence us, let us be encouraged to be like the apostles here. Notice three things. First of all, the apostles speaking with boldness. The apostles speaking with boldness. We read that when they saw their boldness, the boldness of Peter and John. And as you look at their boldness, then we might notice just briefly five things regarding that boldness. First thing we see is courage. There's courage. Think of the circumstances. They were somewhat intimidating. They've been arrested and thrown into prison. They know they're in trouble. They know the authorities are against them. And uh, that uh, the priests, the council, are upset with them. And with the commotion. What authority have you to preach and to teach? By what power or by what name have you done this? Especially, no doubt, the question was, you know, what authority have you to be doing all these things? They knew that the, 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 the council hated the name of Jesus and that they wanted to hear nothing of him. For seven weeks, as we said this morning, virtually nothing had been said. And then, for a few days, what a rumpus. And in such a situation, it would be so easily to be overcome with fear and to see nothing. And you think of how many at the end of the day want to suppress your witness. You can be a Christian in private if you want to be. That's fine. Because we're all allowed to have our own private ideas as long as you keep them to yourself. You can believe whatever you want to believe, however mad it is, we don't care. That is the prevailing attitude. But what you must not do is speak out loud. And especially tell people that you know the truth absolute truth and that they are wrong you mustn't do that and often is it not true that we are browbeaten into silence and surely what we need is courage look at the courage here they're before the Sanhedrin they're before the lawyers and the teachers they're before the rationalists of the day those who don't believe in angels and miracles, and the resurrection, are a bit like the scientific people, and those who say, I follow the scientists, and all this nonsense about religion. It's pie in the sky, believing in fairies. And to them, with courage, they speak, The righteous, we are told, are bold as a lion. What have we to fear? 
if we have the truth and we have, the righteous are bold because they know they are doing what's right. <coughs> and let us be unashamed of doing what's right, of standing up for what's right, and of speaking what is right. Let us remember that the fear of man brings a snare. Let us fear God rather than man, as we find Peter basically explaining. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Is it right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God? Oh no, I feared God, he's basically saying. And I must therefore fulfill that commission to be his witness. I must be unashamed of the gospel and of the bonds it may bring. <clears throat> There's courage. But you'll notice, along with courage, there is courteousness. It's very easy when we are being attacked, we might say, or challenged by the ungodly and unprincipled, and that is the way so many are. Deep down they're ungodly, they're unprincipled, and they believe lies. It's very easy in such a situation to perhaps respond like for like, to be partisan, or to be contemptuous. What happens when you do that? Well, turn your witness into a negative witness. And you end up losing the ear rather than gaining the attention of the one you want to influence. And look at Peter here. How does he begin his address? Verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He gives them their place. He acknowledges that they are the rulers of the people and the elders of Israel. It's still a time of transition uh, where uh, we have the Old Testament church and the elders of the church being uh, that, that, that uh, being the transition from that situation to the New Testament set up of the church as it has expanded beyond Israel, but he's courteous. And yet at the same time he is bold. Well, let's never confuse courtesy with boldness. Both belong together. And yet we are to give no offence except the gospel of Christ. You see, if we love others, we will speak the truth in love. Let us seek to be a people who are filled with love for others, especially those who are perishing. Let that be our great desire to see them delivered from the wrath which is to come. We are told to owe no man anything but to love. We have a duty to love others. And that is seen in the... Um, <coughs> keeping of the law which will include kindness 
shown to others. Let's remember that often that is the way in which you can win the ears of others. Over the last few days, I've been reading the account of the uh, mission work of Dr. Cayley in the 1800s who went to Madeira as a medical missionary, but with a great desire also to share the gospel. <coughs> and he was so careful not to offend the Roman Catholic authorities. And yet he would then openly challenge, we might say, certain Roman Catholic teachings, but he, he preached, he set forth the, the truths, the positive truths of the gospel. But alongside that, there was medical work that he did. He would often overcharge, we might say, the rich, often rich British who were there in Madeira. And freely, he would provide care, including medicines, to the poor. And he won the ears of many. And along with his medical work, he prayed with his patients. And through that, many were converted. A care, as well as a love and a care, as well as a, an honesty with the gospel. Are you loving and caring? Do your families who perhaps don't go near church, are you loving toward them and caring for them so that there's nothing that offends but the offence of the gospel? That's what they were like, Peter and John. Curtius. Notice also there's clarity. Clarity. As you read what Peter says here, you find that he is not like many who fudge the issues. Peter could have tried to wriggle out of things, to avoid saying certain things, to equivocate, to use language which could be taken in different ways. He's speaking to the Sadducees, and they are your rationalists, as we said, who deny the resurrection. And so is he going to ignore the resurrection? Well, he won't ignore the resurrection for the simple reason that it is the great truth of the gospel. You see, I thought that was the death of Christ. Well, of course, remember that the, the resurrection includes the prior death. And it is the proof. It is the proof that the death did something, provided salvation. As Rabbi Duncan put it, it is the receipt paid in full, sin dealt with. That's why we rejoice. And the resurrection day, the Lord's day. One reason at least. And you'll notice, he doesn't equivocate. He doesn't leave the people wondering what it's all about. He doesn't use language which might mean different things to different people. That's what a pragmatist does. That's sadly what many do. They go on about the love of God and the death of Jesus. But yet... They don't really tie up the ends very well. They don't want to mention sin in case it offends people. What a dreadful situation. When you get preachers embarrassed by the word sin. What salvation? What does it mean if we're not saved from our sins? Isn't that the gospel of God's grace? Well, you'll notice, Peter here is clear. 
he gives a clear explanation so that by the time he has finished speaking to them, and we only have a brief summary of what he has said here, they are left in no doubt that it is Jesus of Nazareth who is the important one through him this man was healed that he is the saviour of sinners. Let us be clear in our explanations and let us not equivocate. If you want to win someone over to the saviour, be honest with them and challenge them with the truth clearly. Let others know where you stand and why you stand there. You'll notice there's also a Christ-centred focus. What was the problem with the Sadducees and the others who were in the council? It was at the end of the day they had a wrong view of Christ. They hated him. That's why they had had him crucified. And they didn't want to hear any of those claims about his resurrection. And therefore, we find Peter goes to the heart of the problem. He mentions um, Christ, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you all. This is the stone, quoting Psalm 118, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. There you were building. You picked up the stone. You thought, what a, what a rubbish bit of stone that is. That's no use for our building. I want something better than that. And that was the thing that mattered. Christ. And him crucified. Christ as the saviour of sinners. And God in the resurrection had shown him to be the head of the corner. So Peter goes to the heart of the situation. And you'll notice he's not sidetracked in any way. He doesn't get down some interesting little sidetrack which, if you have all the time in the world to discuss things in a very intellectual way, it might be quite interesting to look at, but really was of very little relevance to the, the matter at hand. So he doesn't... So he keeps to the main things. He mentions the man, but he points out and um, uh, but but really what he is what he is uh, uh, but but he doesn't really go into these things in great detail. He knows that they cannot really deny that this man has been made whole. What he does is he points to to Christ. And he emphasises Christ as the, the only saviour, as the all-sufficient saviour, as the one who God has made clear that he has approved of him. The chief cornerstone, the foundation upon which the whole church of God is built. Friends, people are always trying to sidetrack us, aren't they? The woman of Samaria did that with the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus told her that she should, she need to drink of the, 
the wells of salvation. And she doesn't understand. And as he tells her to call on her husband, and she says she hasn't a husband, he says, well, you're right, because I know you've got five husbands, and the man you've got just now isn't even your husband. What's her response? She doesn't feel any awkwardness or any shame over what would appear to be a excessive infidelity, unfaithfulness to the seventh commandment. She says, you're a prophet. Here, here's an interesting question. Where are we to worship? The Jews say it's one place. We say it's a different place. Where are we to worship? And all she's doing is deflecting things. Friends, people love deflecting things. Your loved ones. And you try and speak to them about Christ and they try and deflect things and the conversation on, onto other things. Well, there might be times when you just let it go, but there's other times. You need to row them back in. Reel them back in to what matters. Getting back to what is central. The reality of sin. The reality of judgment. The reality that only Christ can save. You meet all sorts of people with all sorts of weird views. Don't worry. If you don't really understand these things or know how to speak about them or speak against them. Because most of the time it doesn't really matter. It's the central truth. Who Christ is and what he means to you. We speak a lot more anything else and you'll notice along with that Christ centred focus there's this challenge Peter's speaking he has to defend himself but surely he's also speaking to challenge them to provoke them <laughs> to lead them to conviction to lead them to see that they are wrong and what we have here is effectively one of those loving calls to repentance that you see so often in these early chapters of uh, Acts where as the apostles are speaking to the Jews, especially in Jerusalem, they tell them, you wickedly put him to death. Yes, it might have been God's plan that he should die on the cross, but you wickedly put him to death. You're responsible. And you better repent of that. And embrace him as a saviour and come and entrust your soul to him for yourself. Notice how he describes the miracle in verse 9. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man. It's a good deed. In other words, why are you, why are you asking us about doing something that's good? If we'd done something that was bad... I could understand that, but it was a good deed. You've got it all wrong. You should stop and think about this deed and how it came about and why it is relevant and speaks to you. You should realise that you were foolish and throwing away the stone that was the important stone. Repent of that. 
and realize he is the only Savior, the only, the God-appointed, the attested Savior. Friends, let your life and your words be a challenge to those around you. We are called to be lights, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We're tempted to compromise, aren't we? Because no one likes to be different. No one likes to stand out like a sore thumb. No one wants problems. We all want an easy life. But if you and I have the word of truth that others need, let our life, and as God gives us openings, let our words be a challenge to the world around us. They were speaking with boldness. Briefly, notice in the second place, the Sanhedrin marvelling at their boldness. What he did, they were astonished. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marvelled. What was it that caused this astonishment, this marvelling? Well, no doubt it was partly because of what they said. What they said was astonishing. They weren't like many preachers. You wouldn't remember anything they said because what they said... What they say isn't worthwhile remembering. How many today who fill pulpits in our land their message is irrelevant? The world ignores it because all they are doing is echoing what the world is saying. You end up with an unremarkable message. It's all fits the the politics and the prevailing philosophy of the day and the messages be nice. And that's about as far as it goes. Why is it the churches are empty throughout our land today? Why are too so few attend church? We might say it's because for the last 150 years or so, increasingly, you have had a gospel which is no gospel, a sort of social gospel, which has denied the authority of God's word, which has sort of said, well, just live a decent life, and if we follow the example of Christ, that will help society live and people live the way they should. But there's no message of Christ and him crucified, Christ risen, the supernatural. It's just a case of aping the world and its unbelief. <coughs> and so you have unbelieving ministers and those who are openly um, wicked in their lifestyles, filling the pulpits. It shouldn't surprise us. No one goes to church. I often say to people, I often tell people uh, in air, most ministers don't believe the Bible today, and then they look at me. 
They usually look at me as if I'm uh, saying something really outrageous and strange. Then I'll say to them, well, why is it they will, they will marry all sorts of people and advocate all sorts of lifestyles? Does the Bible teach that? And I say, well, no, I see what you mean. And I said, that's why I wouldn't go to these churches. No wonder no one goes to these churches. What you need is a message that is bold, the truth of God. You look at the robust gospel that they declared. This challenging, convicting message. They took note of this. They couldn't but take note of what they were saying. They didn't like it. But it was worthwhile hearing. Friends. Some may reject the truth. But others will be drawn. Remember the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The Lord uses this word. This challenging convicting word. Don't be ashamed of it. Be bold. And yes, it will increasingly surprise people. But it doesn't matter. They need to be surprised. Or that they would be more than surprised, but drawn to the Lord. And yes, it wasn't just because of what they said, there was also who they were. They realised that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Now that, by that it means that they were not trained in the law. They weren't the professionals of the day. They were ordinary people. They had been trained, of course. But no difference of training. But as far as they were concerned, they were just fishermen, mainly from Galilee, country bumpkins, in other words. Not the professional classes. And the scholars of the great city. And the Lord used them to speak on this occasion and at this time. You know, it's amazing how if the Lord can give words to you to speak. Have you found that? And the more you speak for the Lord at times, as openings are given the more he gives you to speak. And it can be amazing what is said. Sometimes we're surprised. Sometimes I'm very surprised at things I've ended up saying to people. I thought, I would have never have dreamt of saying that, but the Lord helped. And he can give us a boldness. How is it that they were bold? Well, notice thirdly, the secret of their boldness. We're told they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. Hadn't Christ taught them? They had been three years in the school of Christ. They weren't actually those who had not been trained. Their training was different. It wasn't that dead, empty learning of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees it was the teaching of Christ. And yes, especially his teaching after the resurrection. Because you remember what he said, 
to the tune of the road to Emmaus, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to have entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. And the penny dropped. And those scriptures they knew. They suddenly realized who they spoke of. And, and what, what an amazing thing it must have been to relate the Old Testament in a new way to Christ that they had never done before. And for the other disciples, how he said later on in Acts 24, these are the words which I speak unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. They had been with Jesus and he had taught them. They had seen the risen Christ. They knew it was true. It wasn't my truth. It was the truth. It wasn't an opinion. It was the reality. It was absolute truth. It was the truth of God relevant to everyone that Christ is the risen Saviour. And they're bold because they know this is the truth. And yes, they had seen Christ's methods, his compassion, his honesty, his challenge, and are following in his footsteps, fearing God and honouring God as Christ did. What will help you to be bold? Well, is to be in the school of Christ. It's to learn from Christ. It's as you are more and more persuaded of the truth, as you grow in grace and the knowledge of the truth, as you have that experience of God's grace in your own soul, then it emboldens you. You know this is the truth. He is the risen Saviour. He is the one who people need. Having felt your own as it were, hanging over the bottomless pit by a thread, ready to be destroyed, and God saving you by his grace. You know, that's what others are. You see their need. And they're convinced of the truth. Is not what gives you boldness. Let us not lose sight of the truth. Let us not lose sight of our own experience of the truth. They had been with Jesus. But it wasn't just that they had been with Jesus. Is it not also true they were still with Jesus? They were living in fellowship with him. Yes, he's the risen Christ. He's not with them physically. But he is with them by his spirit. And through his ordinances, through prayer, they are seeing who he is. They are prizing him as the saviour. Seeing him as the mighty king. The one who is Lord of all against whom the heathen may rage as is quoted in Psalm 2. But God has set him as his holy king in Zion. Knowing the truth, they cannot but speak. You know, the more we know of God, the more emboldened we are. The people that do know their God shall be strong 
and do great like exploits. What enables them to be strong and do great exploits? They know their God. And they find their confidence in God. We remember that he is the source of our strength. That without Christ we can do nothing. But he is able to embolden us and to help us. And yes, no doubt Peter's memory of his past feeling also encouraged him. Just seven, eight weeks before, Peter had denied his Lord three times. To who? To a little maid. And to another maid. When really there was no need to, because there was already one of the followers of Jesus present at the trial, John himself. No doubt Peter remembered how he had failed the Lord. And was resolved. I'm not going to let that happen again. Isn't that the message of the church? The feeling of the church? So henceforth we will not go back. Or turn from thee at all. When you lose those opportunities. As you do. Because we're all like that. We keep quiet when we shouldn't. Let us be resolved when we're challenged. Next time. I'll seek by God's grace. Not. To let the opportunity to go by. I will seek to be faithful to Christ. And here is Christ. They had been with Jesus. He's still present with them by his spirit. No doubt they're praying that they might be filled anew with strength. You find that later on. They prayed. The place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They speak the word of God with boldness. Friends, let us remember it's him who enables us to speak and act and do those little things which show to others whose we are and whom we serve and whom we love and who we rely on and who they need to rely on. The more you and I are with Christ, the more we will grow in holiness and the more we will be emboldened to be like Christ. And so he uses them. Not the great intellects of the age we might see. Not those who had gone to the schools and learned and ignorant men. Who had been in Christ's school. Well that's you friend, that's me. And the Lord's able to use us. Let us be bold then. Let us be unashamed. Don't be browbeaten. When people want you to keep silent and not be a witness for Christ. Me others, note your boldness and may it be evidence that you have been with Jesus. Let us pray. Our Lord, grant thy blessing upon thy truth. How we need thy grace and help that in a day when we are so tempted to be quiet we might remain faithful 
and be witnesses for thee. Bless the congregation here. Maintain the witness here. Bless them in their workplace, in their families, in the school, in the home. Lord, that as we go about our daily bit of business, thou wouldst give openings and enable us to be faithful. Scattering the good seed here and a little, there a little. Scattering it upon the waters, looking to thee to bless it, as thou alone art able. Receive our praise, forgive our sin, and our lack of courage, embolden us more in Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. We conclude singing to God's praise from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 at verse 14. Psalm 51 at verse 14. O God of my salvation, God, me from blood guiltiness set free. Then shall my mouth, my tongue uh, aloud sing of thy righteousness. My closed lips, O Lord, by thee let them be opened. Then shall thy praises by my mouth abroad be published. To the end of the psalm, to God's praise. O God of my Sing on.
as follows. Prayer meeting is on Thursday at half past seven. It will be taken by Mr Tim Nixon. As yet there's no preacher arranged for next Sabbath, but the services will be at the usual times. And as a reminder from Mrs Kirsty Ferrier that the next prayer meeting of the Melville Knox Highland School Steering Committee will, God willing, be held on Tuesday the 24th of October, that's this Tuesday, at 7.30pm here in this building. The meeting will be led by the Reverend Davide Ratti and a short update will be given. All are warmly invited to join. That's Tuesday coming here at half past seven. These are all the intimations, God willing. <clears throat> the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Amen.